TED Audio Collective. This is Zigzag, a podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and we are coming into the final leg of season two, and one of the weirdest years of my professional career. Maybe yours too, from what I've been reading in the inbox. As I record this, it is also almost holiday time, that week between Christmas and New Year when, at least here in the U.S., most of us go kind of dormant. It is one of my favorite times of year. A brief but much-needed stretch of days that aren't packed with calls and appointments and school pickups or lengthy to-do lists. Even if you're listening to this episode months from now, like July, let's get you in the mood. Imagine gazing at a crackling fire, going for a long, brisk walk, or sipping a hot, cinnamony glass of mulled wine. It's the perfect setting to have expansive, big-picture thoughts, to think macro, maybe even radical ideas about where your life, society, and the world should go. Not sure where to start? (laughs) Nah. Well. So what I really want, and I like to joke about this, the open revolution is kind of about capitalism and socialism having a baby. What would it look like if capitalism and socialism had a baby? Cute baby? Ugly baby? Boss baby. Well, according to economist Rufus Pollack, it would be a revolution. An open revolution. Open revolution happens to also be the name of his latest book, which is available online for as much or little as you feel like paying. Because Rufus believes information should be accessible to everyone, to use, to republish, to rejigger, whatever. He wants you to imagine a world without thousands of paywalls or secretive big tech companies that decide what you see online, where anyone can use, enjoy, and build upon everything from statistics to news stories and books, from software and films to music and medical research. Why should we care or even entertain this strange idea? Because it has to do with income inequality. The richest 1% of the world's population now own more than half of the world's wealth. The digital economy has concentrated money and power into the hands of the very few. And Rufus has a plan to give it back to the people. Sit back or stretch your legs and open your mind. Welcome to the open data or open source movement at its most extreme. It's Zigzag Season 2. Episode 11. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Okay, quick programming note. We are putting out two episodes today. We're saving all the details and meta conversation about what ZigZag and Civil are doing and Stable Genius, all of our plans. We're saving that conversation for episode 12, which will officially mark the end of ZigZag season two. 
Uh, it doesn't really matter whether you listen to this episode or that one first. It more depends on your mood. Okay, you're still here, so you must be in the mood to be intellectually challenged. That is so like you. There are people, like some U.S. senators, maybe you, who think that the next political movement will be all about monopoly busting. Breaking up big tech, big pharma, big everything. Making it possible for small businesses to compete, to spread the wealth around, and give us places to communicate other than on all the popular social media sites, which are basically owned by two or three companies. As the Open Markets Institute puts it, when we purchase everything from washing machines to groceries, website domains to medical supplies, and even when we select a coffin for a recently deceased loved one, we are constrained by the small set of actors who increasingly control America's commerce. Concentrated control can mean more money and power at the tippy top and less for the rest. Rufus. This is Rufus. Hi there. It's Manoush in Brooklyn. Hey, Manoush. Dr. Rufus Pollack is a researcher, technologist, and entrepreneur. He's a pioneer in the global open data movement, advising governments, international organizations, and industries on how to succeed in the digital world more fairly. And I've also uh, taught economics at the University of Cambridge, and I've been the founder of Open Knowledge, which is a leading international NGO the presence in over 35 countries, which is about empowering people and organizations with access to information in the digital age. Okay, so Rufus is super qualified. And his latest book, which you can download for free, is called The Open Revolution. Because he thinks that this closed and controlled world we're living in is a big problem. And because in a digital age, who owns information controls the future. What does that even mean? Kronos was the father of Zeus, one of the titans. Well, to explain, it helps to start with a little Greek mythology. And it was foretold to him in a prophecy that his children would overthrow him. So as any logical father and titan would do, what did he do? Every time his wife had a baby, he would eat the baby. Right? He'd eat it. But one day, Rhea managed, his wife managed to have a baby secretly, Zeus. And Zeus escaped from his father's attention. And one night, while his father was sleeping, Zeus cut his father's stomach open and released all of his siblings. And they made war on their parents, on the Titans, and overthrew them, as the, and the prophecy came true. This is what monopolists have to do, right? Mark Zuckerberg sees that Instagram is getting traction. So what does he do? He buys it. He gobbles it up. Same with WhatsApp and dozens of other acquisitions. And that is what goes on for every monopolist, right? You know, why does Mark Zuckerberg not have a very relaxed life? Because he's always worrying about the people who will come and eat his lunch, just as Google ate Microsoft's lunch, as Microsoft ate IBM's lunch. Now, it's great being a monopolist while you're there, but it's like that. You're always in fear of being overthrown. Now, the problem of that is that fear leads to a couple of things. Most fundamentally, it leads to a desire to eat your children, to kill off the, those who threaten you. And the problem of that is it destroys innovation. So what happens? Why, you know, Facebook did not buy WhatsApp in so that WhatsApp could develop and innovate and compete with Facebook. No, they bought WhatsApp to neutralize WhatsApp as a competitor to Facebook. They bought Instagram to neutralize it as a competitor to Facebook. And the problem is, Rufus says, that even if you regulated a monopoly company, like, say, AT&T, we'll still have companies who try to smother competition. 
in stranger and less obvious ways. There's a great story of AT&T basically tried to have this rule that no one could attach anything to AT&T's lines without their permission. Starting with a famous case called the Hushaphone case, which was about a guy who literally wanted to put a plastic cop on the end of the plastic phone. Back in the 40s and 50s, the Hushaphone was a kind of cone. I looked at some pictures of it. You could slip it over the receiver end of your phone so that people couldn't hear your conversation, what you were saying. It really had nothing to do with telephone lines or connecting people. But nonetheless... And AT&C said, you're not allowed to do that, right? They literally sued him for 10 years to stop him doing that. Now, why did, why did they turn up for a court case where this guy's a one-man company? They literally turned up with 10 lawyers in 1956 to do this because they were so afraid. In a great Atlas Obscura article about this case, they compare the Hushaphone situation to imagining that today Apple said, you can only use a certain selfie stick with our iPhones. We will link to that article in our newsletter, which has great pictures. Uh, we'll link to it there and in our show notes. But anyway... AT&T continued to threaten anyone who came near their business. What did AT&T do in the 1970s when MCI came along, long-distance competition? It is legendary what AT&T did to sabotage their competitor. They literally dug up their lines, refused to connect them. I mean, it's it's legendary. It's part of what led to the breakup of AT&T, right, in the 1980s, the antitrust decision. Now... What I'm trying to say is, therefore, what you really want is you want competition. But if you regulate Google and Facebook so more companies can compete with them, what happens then? I go over to another new social media platform, but none of my friends are there. So what's the point of that? Well, Rufus has another solution. Don't just regulate the companies. Open them up. What I'd really like to see is Google's algorithm being made open. I'd like to see Facebook's platform and protocols made open. Not, not your personal photos, but the actual software that makes Facebook run that would allow other companies to build competing systems that could connect to Facebook. That's what we really need. And we really need a way to then fund that in an open way. When we come back, how do you fund all these platforms and people in an open way? A cryptocurrency. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's much less sexy or speculative than that. We'll be back in a minute. In 2011, when the horrific earthquake and tsunami happened in Japan, the Fukushima power plant failed. Radioactive material leaked everywhere, but the disaster also sparked an inspiring example of open information. A small group of volunteers designed and deployed Geiger counters, collecting more than 100 million radiation measurements. Joey Ito, the director of MIT's Media Lab, writes about his experience being part of this group of volunteers who did that in the latest Wired magazine. We will link to that article, too. According to Joey, this was the first time that a global community of experts formed to create a baseline of radiation measurements so that everyone could monitor radiation levels around the world. He goes on to say that he hopes the recent horrific fires in California and the awful smoke there inspires more people in Silicon Valley to measure air quality collectively. Because information can have more value if it's open for everyone to contribute to and use. There are thousands of examples of open data projects already out there. But how to convince the big tech companies to fully embrace being open? Because right now, there's very little motivation. Companies like Google and Facebook are incentivized to hoard data. 
Right now, what they do is eat up smaller, innovative companies and then do yet more micro-targeting of ads based on our most intimate data. It's a proprietary approach to information, a monopolistic one, as our techie economist Rufus Pollack mentioned earlier. And that is potentially where the government comes in. But Rufus says, don't just regulate Google or Facebook or force them to be part of the open data movement. Take it a step further. Change the way the money works. Create a public fund that pays for it all. Yeah, this this is a pretty out there idea. Okay, Facebook, you need to open your protocol. You need to open your software. You need to allow people to interconnect with you, other social networks. Just like the internet is like this, it's going to be an open system where anyone can run a website. Just like that, anyone can connect to Facebook, to our open social net. And we're going to give out this money to people who develop and run pieces of that infrastructure, you know, particularly who develop it. So if you, Facebook, have come up with the key innovations, great, you'll get $3 billion a year from the the social network fund. But if some other new startup comes along and does something awesome, they can get $500 million a year. Mm. So what I really want, and I like to joke about this, the open revolution is kind of about capitalism and socialism having a baby, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because what it is, is it's, if you're in this world where suddenly in a weird way, like socialism makes sense, right? Like you can't give everyone a copy of War and Peace. You can't give everyone a copy of the software that runs Facebook. You can give everyone a copy of, you know, Wild Wild West. You know, you can give people a copy of Beyonce's latest single. But that's the kind of socialism part. We can make that open and give it out freely to everyone. Okay, but we need to pay creators and we want to do it in like a capitalist, more free market way, like in a way where there is competition, where people who create stuff that's useful get paid and people who create like stuff that's not so great don't get paid so much. So Rufus has this theoretical pot of money that he calls the Remuneration Rights Fund. Not that catchy of a term, but kind of compelling in a civic-minded way. Kind of like Radiotopia, collecting money and then distributing it to all the podcasts in its collective. And the money is distributed based on kind of value and usage. You know, if your music is listened to a lot, you get more money. If your drug is not successful and doesn't cure any cancer, you don't get any money. So it's the kind of capitalism part in this free market, demand-driven distribution of money combined with the kind of socialist part of what, okay, because we have because of the magic of the digital world, we can give out stuff at the point of use costlessly. And then the two fit together because we as citizens need to come together and put up money. Because much of our political divisions come down to economics, right? The guy who owns a pet supply store whose customers have all pretty much migrated over to Amazon. And this guy, he sees a tiny elite class of technologists making bank. He's angry and resentful about why are some people making out so well in this new world? Why are the bankers? Why are the tech guys in Silicon Valley? But he's struggling. And those people are voting for people like Donald Trump. And understandably so, because unlike many other groups at the moment, he might be right. A lot of things he's not saying are right, but he's actually addressing that fear. Mm -hmm. And what I think is incredible is if you looked at all the writing about digital technology and Donald Trump, it's about fake news. It's about Twitter. But no one says, look, guess what? The bottom 60% of Americans have not seen their real wages rise since 1973. Can you believe that? And they're actually poorer than they were in 1999. And guess what? Intel was founded in 1968, Apple in 1976, 
Microsoft in 1975. There is a direct relationship between the growth of this digital economy, but running on rules of exclusive ownership, of monopoly rights, and the inequality that is driving these massive political changes. We could create remuneration rights, replace monopoly rights with them, give creators a fairer and better deal, and suddenly give open access to medicine, to music, to movies, to software, bring back free enterprise, bring back competition. And that's why I say it's capitalism and socialism having a baby, because it's suddenly not right or left anymore. This is something that has both sides coming together in this digital world. So I I don't know if you're familiar, but I have been part of an experiment uh, to use blockchain and crypto economics and uh, game theory Mm. to create sort of a new ecosystem for news, kind of like Facebook, but without the advertising, um, but with a token at the heart of it to create this idea of, um, as as you put it, this sort of um, that everyone sort of collectively pays for the information that is on there. They could do micro tipping with these tokens. Um, Do you think that this is a viable way of making what you just described um, real and possible? Well, in a small part. So... Let's just talk about, so there are two parts of making the remuneration rights work, right? Yeah. The one part one is that there's money in the remuneration rights fund, that people pay subscriptions. Part two is how do you distribute that money to creators in a way that's fair, transparent, related to the value they generated, et cetera, yep. right? Now, a lot of the blockchain crypto stuff in, you know, and quite a few people come and talk to me because it's like cool, cool at the moment. <laughs> yep. It's a bit, it tends to focus on that second part of it, right? It focuses on the distribution problem, really, or on transparency. And it doesn't really address the first part, which is who puts money in, how do you get people to pay subscription fees, right? Mm. I mean, a lot of blockchain, if I'm honest, you know, and I'm a blockchain skeptic to an extent, if you read my blog posts uh, on it, is that they tend to have this like slate of hand, this techno solutionist slate of hand. So a lot of the more interesting problems that blockchain is claimed to be addressing basically are about uh, what I would call collective action problems, right? Yep. They're like, how do we, how do we run X? How do we build a distributed Uber? Whatever it is. And they ignore, they kind of somehow snap their fingers and wave a wand and say, oh, but using blockchain will solve the collective action problem. But really what they are solving often is just the distribution problem once you have money in the pot. Right. You need the money to launch an experimental blockchain project that distributes information directly to people rather than through Facebook or Google. Mm, Sounds kind of like our civil experiment. The idea there was that blockchain would make it possible to create a mini economy for a network of independent newsrooms. But it needed millions of dollars to jumpstart it first. How was civil going to pay for it? Well, the idea was that token sale, which, as we documented at the beginning of season two, failed. Just FYI, there is a plan B, which we tell you about in episode 12. But for now, let's just say that all the initial coin offerings, ICOs that are out there that came before Civil, those that collected millions of dollars and many that ended up being Ponzi schemes, I think all those scams and the wishful thinking around crypto contributed to making it tough for a good and thoughtful blockchain project to get going. A token sale, in retrospect, was not the way to go. It got a lot of press, but not a lot of money. 
Rufus says the change he's talking about making in how things get funded is more traditional. It is definitely not as exciting as crypto. The issue what we want to do is an institutional legal change. It's about creating a new legal right, the remuneration right. That is political change. And it's one of the problems I do see in blockchain is there's a tendency to think that technology will solve a political problem. I, by political, I don't necessarily mean politics in the sense of Democrats and Republicans. I mean political in like group coordination. And my answer here is to say... Well, I think that's because people see that the group co- coordination at the governmental level just sucks. It's well, not that's, happening. But that's, that's a lie. This is, okay, now we're getting to a much more interesting topic. That's a weird lie that actually <laughs> came to you from the AER. It came to you from often right-wing action groups from the 70s. That belief that government sucks is prevalent. I really know it. I, I work in tech. And what's funny, when I go around talking about open revolution, everyone's like, blockchain. I'm like, well, guys, why don't we, like, guess what? There's already this incredible co-op in the sky called the government that we spent thousands, hundreds yeah. on thousands of years developing this thing to solve public goods problems, which is essentially, by the way, what this is. It's a public goods problem, right? Researching new medicine is a public yeah, goods yeah. problem. You know, it's why, just as a weird example, that well-known socialist republic known as the United States of America, and that is a joke for people out there, <laughs> guess what? 50% of all production of medical knowledge for new drugs in the United States is paid for by, guess who? Uncle Sam. Imagine if I was going around saying the U.S. government is paying for 50% of all steel production. You'd think, my God, is this the USSR, right? You know, no, because we know that information is different. I want them collecting the money and then I want the market to determine how that money is given to creators. But to go back to blockchain, the issue that blockchain, the most interesting problems blockchain ends up being talked about are basically collective action problems. And you're quite right. A lot of the interest in blockchain reflects a disappointment and a cynicism, particularly of progressive people in tech and progressive people in general, with a political system. But the funny thing is, I think that they're just deeply mistaken. If you actually look mm. at government today, it's not, in many, on most metrics, it's far better than it was in the past. People expect seemingly mm. a lot more of it. They're a lot more disappointed in it because they see how it is. Like, as Mark Twain said, people who like sausages and laws should not see them being made. Right. And it's true. Like, it's ugly making the 2008, the crash freaked them out. The crash made them think, but like, the trend I thought was everything there was going really well. And then, like, the sky fell. The tra- if you look at the trend of trust in government, it starts in the 70s. And it's systematic. It was accelerated by 2008. But if you look in most developed countries, particularly the U.S., and more Anglo-American. And it's partly systematic. So, for example, just an interesting fact. Do you know that your congressional, congr- your congressman has less, in real, basically, in nominal terms, has had their budget fixed for congressional assistance fixed since the no- early 1980s? Now, what does that do to a congressman? Mm-hmm. A, a really subtle way. You've basically taken away from that congressman or congresswoman the ability to get advice because they don't have staff anymore. So guess who they depend on? Lobbyists. Right. So now who was it who restricts that budget rise? Oh, we don't want big government. We don't want big government. Well, guess what? It's a beautiful play by traditionally, I have to say here, right-wingers, not all people, but often right-wingers, which is to both deny the government the resources to operate well and then blame them for not being competent and then justifying further cuts. Now, it is also true that government has got bloated or whatever in certain ways, but I'm trying to say there is no solution to these big collective action problems, whether they're climate change or how we fund information, how we run a fair and free digital economy that don't involve basically political collective action to resolve public goods issues. There is no shortcut. 
There is no blockchain shortcut for these things. Blockchain is just a distribution mechanism. It doesn't solve how you fund the thing. To do that, you need something which has the ability to persuade everyone in the club to contribute their fee. It's called the state. We set it up over hundreds of years. We've developed very complicated mechanisms for running it that work really pretty well. You want to use it. And what we need at the moment, I would say in the tech sector, is renewal engagement in everyday politics. People are impatient. Mm. They want to build an app and fix stuff. No. Politics is just hard because it's like living in a shed. Who's lived in a shed house and had negotiations over the fridge? You know, politics is just, it's, but it's, it's profound and it's wonderful and it's important and it's going to shape the 21st century. Basically, the massive growth in inequality, which is driving the populism, driving massive seismic political changes, such as the election of Donald Trump, Brexit, etc. You can trace it back. You can trace it back to an information economy, a digital economy, running on old rules, creating monopolies, creating massive concentration of power and wealth. And that is not sustainable. And I want to see a better future for all of us. And that takes us getting engaged in politics again. Rufus Pollock, thank you so, so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay, that's the macro view from Rufus. You can listen right now to episode 12 to hear the micro view from Jen and me. Um, And many listeners, actually, their vantage point on where we go in the next year from here. All season two of ZigZag, we have talked about how we've gotten to this moment with information and technology where the stakes feel really high not just for digital newsrooms, but for our societies. And that is why we have been investigating solutions and ideas to making our media, our networks, and our devices more accountable and responsive to us, the people. We're just people. Thank you for being curious, optimistic, inquisitive, and supportive. Being here with us to do this hard thinking, being responsive. And hopefully having some fun every so often, too. I'm going to really suggest that you check out our newsletter. Go to zigzagpod.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page. Put in your email. We will not share it with anyone. And we're going to take a few weeks off, but usually on Thursday mornings, you will get links to the best articles out there, other podcasts we think are worth listening to, and a personal little note from me. Zigzagpod.com. Thanks again. This episode was produced by me, Jen Poyant, and Thalia Beatty. Dan DeZula and David Herman are our audio engineers and composers. Many thanks to Kieran Kay as well. ZigZag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi. I will see you soon. The re- the remu- I can't say this word. Remuneration.